Hello, everyone, and welcome to IEBA Interviews. I'm Kim Badir with Tacoma Venues and Events, home of the iconic Tacoma Dome, and I'm here today with Tim Epstein of Doug & Birch. Um, IEBA members will likely recognize Tim for his uh, long-running Terms and Conditions panel series with the IEBA conference, always a, a room full, standing room only. Welcome, Tim. Happy to be here. So, um, here we are. It's a, it's a surreal, kind of bizarre time for everybody. Um, I think our industry generally speaks in terms of our future as like a fuzzy crystal ball. And I've been telling people these days it's gone beyond that. And now that crystal ball is cracked and it's running downhill really fast. So uh, I think one of the things we can hang on to uh, in our profession is uh, the support of our legal teams and um, helping us craft language that will get us through the post-COVID period, basically, and, and help us to get to get reopened. I think most of us work with contracts a lot in our daily professional lives. And, and if they're like me, um, our listeners know enough to be dangerous. And so that's why it's really important that we connect with professionals like yourself. Uh, a lot of the discussion right now is focused on ensuring that we have customer confidence and um, and that we can reopen safely in the whole music and events industry. Obviously, we want to err on the side of safety for everybody. And our customers include, of course, artists, managers, promoters, our own staff, and of course, the ticket buying public as well. Um, an important element of that safety and the way we can ensure it is, of course, through appropriate contract language. So I wanted to start, if, if we could, with uh, something that's uh, near and dear to all of our hearts, and that's uh, FM. And of course, I don't mean radio. I mean the dreaded force majeure. It's in every contract, and we all hope we never have to invoke it, but these days, all of a sudden, we're a lot more familiar with it. Um, of course, definitions and interpretations of force majeure vary from state to state. Can you um, perhaps comment on that and um, talk about some considerations, you know, that those scary terms like impracticability and impossibility and frustration of purpose and in some states obviously they're lumped together some states they're defined individually what will we see going forward and what's the best way to approach force majeure i think well first thank you um for having me here i'm, I'm happy to answer any of these questions um relative to terms and conditions moving forward we're certainly in a in a new age uh post covid um, post-COVID coming out. Hopefully we'll be back in the uh, post-COVID having uh, had some type of uh, cure or vaccine or it just becomes endemic and we're all living with it, you know, fingers crossed. Mm -hmm. So relative to force majeure, the way that I approach force majeure really has not changed with COVID. I think it's just a matter of getting more clients to come around to my way. Um, most buyers want to see, would love to see their contracts being half a page long. Uh, that doesn't really move me. I would prefer the contracts be 20 pages long and they cover everything so we don't have contract disputes down the line. I think now that we're seeing contract disputes down the line, particularly relative to force majeure and how that's working into obligations for performances, um, it's good to have very detailed force majeure provisions. Uh, you know, you are correct, Kim, that different states treat force majeure interpretation differently. 
but oftentimes that comes in when the force majeure provision itself is very short. And it just says in, in case of a force majeure event, without de defining what force majeure is or what a force majeure event is. And so what I have in most of my contracts, uh, whether those be standard template contracts that would go out uh, regardless of, of who it may be or terms and conditions I've negotiated with folks uh, like CAA and Paradigm and uh, William Morris. Um, what's important and what I think most of the, the viewers here will care about um, would be how the agencies are dealing with these contracts. And so adverse weather conditions generally are pulled out of force majeure provisions. It's their own standalone provisions, particularly when we're talking about outdoor uh, hard ticket plays as well as festivals. So if we back out the adverse weather conditions, because it's very clear that neither the buyer or the agent is going to be in charge of the weather. Uh, the same would apply to any other contractor you'd have in place, or if it's a venue owner versus the buyer, no one can control the weather, right? So um, while that is would be black letter law in other industries where yes, no one can control the weather, so that's gonna be a force majeure event, generally adverse weather conditions are dealt with in their own provision within talent performance agreements. Um, so keeping that in mind, the way that I like to frame out force majeure provisions is really agnostic to what state common law we're looking at. It should state exactly what the parties want as opposed to falling into a situation where you're gonna to have to rely on an arbitrator or a judge or a jury to make a determination for you for, here's what we think the parties meant when mm -hmm. they got into this deal. So why not, while you're drafting the contract or negotiating the contract, put in exactly what you mean? And it's okay to have a fight over what that means. Better to have that fight now when you're negotiating a deal than afterwards when there's millions of dollars on the line potentially. So the way that I like to look at force majeure is, is very basic. It's something that is beyond the control of the parties. Sometimes you'd like to put in language like beyond the reasonable control of the parties, but it's beyond the control of the parties. That's the opening principle, all right? That has to be beyond the control of the parties. If, it was, if it's within a party's control, it's not force majeure. So you have that established as the first section. The second section is going to be that makes performance of the contract blank. And what I like to put in is impossible or illegal because impractical is up to interpretation that I don't really care for. So why impossible and why illegal? Because too many times, particularly when we have situations like we're dealing with, with a global pandemic right now, you will have one party think that they can get out of a deal because it's no longer profitable. It's no longer practical because of all the things we have to do to make it happen. But that really is not the purpose of force majeure. Force majeure is not about making sure your deal makes money. It's not about ensuring that if the deal goes forward, it's not going to make one party bankrupt. That's really not the purpose of force majeure. So I'd like to have it say, beyond the reasonable control or beyond the control of the parties to the contract, that makes performance of the contract either impossible or illegal. And then you define what a force majeure event is. Examples of that could be, you know, 
you all know what those you know terms can be. It can be, you know, military action, you know, civil action, and government regulation. Many of those things pop in in various forms. The question is, do you specifically add in in times of COVID, epidemic or pandemic? So what are the differences? Epidemic, you could have epidemic conditions at a local level that doesn't arise to a pandemic. For example, Ebola. Ebola, we had epidemic conditions in Africa, but it was not pandemic because it was not spread around the world. Initially, COVID-19 was an epidemic condition around Wuhan, China, but not pandemic. Now we are in a pandemic where it's widespread around the world. So if you put an epidemic and not pandemic, you're gonna cover pandemic. If you put in just pandemic, then you're not gonna cover local epidemic conditions. Um, and there are some states when you list out specific examples, some states, and here's where the common law um, for what state you're in will actually come in. If you decide to list out a number of things that just says, this is our list of examples. Some states will say, well, you list out all these things, but you didn't put epidemic or pandemic in there. And clearly, if you would have meant to put an epidemic or pandemic, you would have written it in. So put some limiting language in there or savings language in there that would say something to the effect of, this is not limited. This list is not exhaustive. This is, these are just examples, but there can be many more. Whatever you're comfortable with, and the other side's comfortable with to say this is not an exhaustive list. Um, but many agreements did not say before COVID epidemic or pandemic, but they did say government action. And so what you saw a lot of folks doing was waiting to have action on a particular contract until the government actually mandated that it was going to be illegal for them to put on that performance. And once that happened, they said, look, this is a force majeure event. We said government mandate. It's clearly a force majeure event. Here's your money back. Here's your deposit back. The sides just, just go their separate ways, right? Or maybe they use that as a, as a jumping off point for a new contract for something in 21 or 22. Um, there's interesting language that, that has come up um, in some agency deals where they say ready, willing, and able. So even though there is a force majeure event, if the talent is otherwise ready, willing, and able, that takes you out of force majeure. But when you talk about impracticality, impossibility, illegality, and there is, there's not the ability of anyone to put on the performance. So even though you may have ready, willing, and able, that doesn't mean that the artist can walk outside of their house and perform to their neighbors. Mm -hmm. It's the ability of anyone to perform for a, uh, an event of a certain size in a venue, at a festival, whatever it may be. So I think in the future relative to force majeure, what you may see is more specificity thrown on that particular section because there are some disputes now. Well, the artist was ready, willing, and able because they weren't sick and they could leave their house, but that, that really doesn't get to the spirit. Like that doesn't mean anything. Um, there are some disputes that I have with, with some mm -hmm. of my clients, with agencies that have made headlines uh, um, right now that revolves specifically around that force majeure language. So I think we'll see more specificity moving forward just because the parties um, don't want to uh, get into a dispute down the line over what could be millions of dollars. Tim, do we, as part of that specificity, need to identify what civil authority can make that ruling? If it's the health department in the case of a pandemic, if it's our mayor or 
the governor, so many governors are are stepping into the the fray right now with guidelines and restrictions? Uh, I would be careful with limiting yourself to a certain level of government or certain office in government. Um, for example, uh, let's talk about pre-COVID, which this is something that's going to keep happening is inclement weather relative to an outside performance. Mm-hmm. You know, if a local fire captain comes up to the stage and shuts down the performance, you're not going to say, well, it wasn't the mayor. And so we're not going to call this a weather cancellation. And then your insurance carrier for your event cancellation is going to say, great, then we're not paying out on your mm-hmm. event cancellation insurance claim. Yeah. So I would, uh, at least at least with my clients, I would not limit them to a certain office. But that's that's an interesting distinction because what we've seen is mayors and local health commissioners make actual orders mm-hmm. uh, that have to be followed, that uh, have police power behind them, whereas governors haven't necessarily done that the whole time. What the governors have done is given recommendations, and the federal government has given recommendations. Well, if there's no power of law behind it, that doesn't necessarily put you in a force majeure provision. Um, but if a health commissioner or a mayor, those are the folks we've been seeing really put orders down. Governors have been doing it lately, but um, it's been really at the local county and municipal level where they've said it is illegal for this to happen. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't limit it to a certain office or branch of government. One last question from my end, does it it matter if if you specify jurisdiction? So we'll often put into our contracts, we're going to, um, if there comes down to some kind of argument, it's going to, what will be applicable are the the rules in our state or in our specific county, for example. Is it important to get that in there so that if something happens, you can fight it on your own turf? Yeah, so so choice of law um, is is really something that many of the agencies are not going to move on with most buyers. They're going to want it to be uh, California. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to want jurisdiction, the the venue to be LA. Um, I've seen them be willing to do Tennessee. But generally, the talent's going to want uh, the, the choice of law to be in a place that's more favorable to talent. And the most employee-friendly state in the union, by far, is California. And so that's what they're going to want in there. Um, what I, because that seems to be a losing battle for many of my clients to fight back against having choice of law in there, I want them to focus on um, venue and what the procedure is gonna be in in a dispute and not just relative to talent contracts. Um, Many buyers, many um, festival owners, what they like to see is that they wanna be able to close their books in a year. And some of them have special companies set up every year just to put on their events. Um, And then they close that out, you know, that special purpose uh, limited liability company. And so, if the focus is on speed, then go for arbitration versus court. Now, it may cost you a lot more money in a shorter period of time, but overall, it's going to be cheaper, but you're going to get a resolution quicker. You're just going to have to pay the arbitrator mm-hmm. fees, and you're going to have to pay your lawyer more money faster. So maybe it's 100000 over a year and a half versus 200000 over four and a half years, but you're going to get within a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that made me think of something completely unrelated to force measure. Do you think that we will see more people with unreasonable claims try to pursue those 
windfall lawsuits for like, perceived health negligence. So accusing the venue or the artist, for example, of either violating their personal rights because we made them wear a mask or um, like, how do we protect ourselves there? I think one way to protect yourself is be very specific on the conditions for entry at, at time of purchase. And the key is time of purchase, because if you link a waiver, you link terms and conditions with them giving you uh, money and you giving them a ticket back for that, that's really critical um, to get those conditions in force. You know, the, the term we think of as consideration or quid pro mm -hmm. quo, right? So the quid pro quo, this for that. So you're giving me money, I'm giving you a ticket, but you have those, that ticket and you have to follow these terms and conditions that are related to that ticket. And maybe it says you have to wear a mask, you have to do this, you have to do that. Um, and so everyone is apprised ahead of time of what the ruling is going to be when you enter the building. One thing you may consider, which is not ideal, it's that the purchaser of the ticket is the only person who may enter the venue with that ticket. And every single other person is going to have to sign a waiver of understanding what those terms and conditions are before they come in. And if there is a change, if there is some exchange, and maybe this gets to, can your ticketing provider do that from a technological standpoint, um, whether that be the primary provider, the secondary provider, can they put in those terms and conditions so that the next person who has a ticket um, who was sold to, uh, that they also are following those conditions. So it's, it's critical that in my mind, if you're really doing your homework and you really wanna be as, as safe as possible here from a legal standpoint, it's making sure that anyone who enters that building has signed off on what the rules are for that building and that it's tied to consideration, it's tied to payment. So I think most of us have heard the, the line, the waiver's only as good as the paper it's written on. So do you do, you do see waivers as a viable way to limit liability? Yeah. Waivers can be a viable way to limit liability and Generally, waivers, you know, back to your, some of your initial questions relative to the jurisdiction or the choice of law, waivers tend to do better in states that are providers of recreation. So waivers are very enforceable in Colorado. They're very enforceable mm -hmm. in Utah. So the ski states tend to be very good with waivers because they have an inherent interest to protect the providers of the recreation, right? So that's generally going to, those are generally going to be the states where the waivers are going to be better. A second analysis would be waivers are going to be more likely to be enforced in red states versus blue states. Hmm. Um, you're also going to see waivers more likely to be enforced in rural or suburban areas versus urban areas. Um, that just seems to be how waivers are generally working out. But the key with the waivers to make sure there's con consideration and that it's more than a mere dollar or two, right? The, the higher value the uh, exchange, the more likely you will get enforceability on your waiver. So that goes to a fan, that goes to a contractor, that goes to an artist. So the higher dollar value that's associated with the waiver execution at the time the money is exchanged, the more likely it will be to be enforced. And be very specific and don't overreach in your waiver. Hearing the word specific a lot, so I'm going to take that take that away as the top the top word of the day. Specific. Let's talk a little bit about um, addendums, riders. Um, where do we need to include things like the safety language or you know back of house 
um, issues. What are you seeing from artists, promoters, or even venues when it comes to clauses or riders specifically related to COVID and some of the some of the reopening and safety measures we feel we need to implement? Yeah, frankly, Kim, it's all over the place. Uh, I think a lot of it's reflective of jurisdictions. When we're talking about artists, it's reflective of of the artist's state of mind and maybe the artist's economic wherewithal. The artist needs mm-hmm. to get out there and perform to make a living versus some of the A-list headliners who don't and will simply take time off. Um, they're going to be less concerned with COVID regulations. Um, so you see things like mask, temperature checks, um, seeing space, making sure that uh, fans have masks on, making sure security has masks on. Um, but it really is dependent venue to venue. It really is dependent artist to artist. There's not necessarily, um, I've not necessarily seen uniformity throughout the industry. And frankly, I don't think it's appropriate to have uniformity across the industry because uh, we have not seen cohesive national federal response to COVID. It's really state by state, municipality by municipality. And people should respect that within the buyer community that you may have different regulations in Texas and Florida than you do in New York and Illinois. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the buyers that are in Florida and Texas are worse people than the buyers that are in uh, New York and Illinois because they're, they have less regulation. It's, it's a reflective, it's reflective of where those venues are, who's governing those venues, who the fans are that are coming in, who the artists are that are playing at those venues. Um, there's a lot of factors that go into it, but I don't think that, at least in the current environment, that it's appropriate to have set baseline uniformity at all aspects. Are you, are you seeing anything from the federal government or any specific states related to the legal safe harbors for businesses that are following those public health guidelines, any new immunity laws or what anything out there popping up? I, if I had to bet today, I would say that um, Democrats will be willing to give some level of business immunity in exchange for some of the benefits that they're seeking to get legislation passed. So if I had to bet right now, I'd say there will be some type of safe harbor at the federal level. I think uh, at the state level, there is going to be um, some movement uh, to get some state laws passed to give some safe harbors for businesses. I think that largely is going to fall along partisan lines. I think you'll see that movement in red states versus blue states to nobody's surprise. Um, Relative to other legislation that may affect a business and who's able to get relief, you know, you've got workers' compensation laws, you've got OSHA. um, A lot of, uh, for OSHA, you're seeing guidance being put out um, and a recognition that uh, the the disease, the pathogenic disease that's caused by the virus um, from COVID uh, is, is recognized under OSHA uh, as a respiratory illness. Um, for workers' compensation, which would deal with the employees in our industry who are going to be working those shows, um, that we've seen some action come from governors where they've said uh, that you should be able to get workers' compensation benefits if you're sick. And then what the employers would, if they were fighting against it, would say, well, they're going to have to prove that they got sick on the job. 
and that would be with anything. You know, that's yeah. how the workers' compensation system works. Um, but that's about it relative to legislation uh, at the federal and state level. But OSHA, again, it's, it's, it's guidance. There's, there's no mandates at this point. Somewhat related to that, a lot of venues are signing on and committing to something called GBAC STAR accreditation, which is basically a global sanitation standard. And again, just trying to instill that level of confidence in our customers. So as they go from venue to venue, they know that um, they, can, they can expect a certain level of, of safety. Do you, do you see something like that becoming a new standard of care? It's difficult to bring those various standards um, into a civil lawsuit. So uh, states vary, but you know, if there's an OSHA violation, that doesn't necessarily prove that you're civilly liable in a lawsuit, right? Um, so now you're gonna take it a step, make it further attenuated and say, there's going to be some standards that are set up by an independent body that has no affiliation with the state and to say that that should have some level of effect on civil liability for a buyer or for a venue, I think that's going to be very difficult. Um, it may be uh, it may be nice for a plaintiff's attorney to make that argument, um, but I think it would be difficult for that to come in for a judge or a jury or an arbitrator to consider that in evidence that certain standards were not followed. I think it's more for consumer confidence than it is mm -hmm. for actually playing out uh, for civil liability. Right, and that confidence being so key in us getting kick-started once again. Certainly, so yes, there is value there. I just yeah. don't think that the value is, is something that I would be concerned about from a civil liability standpoint. Right, yeah. If, um, if a venue takes all commercially, commercially rather reasonable efforts, there's that R word, right. and can prove those efforts, is that, a major factor in being released from liability or litigation? Well, uh, I think with most venues, um, there's going to be an insurance aspect to it, right? And so mm -hmm. if you get sued or if you get a claim, you're going to want to tender it to your insurance carrier, um, whether directly to the carrier or through your broker. Uh, and hopefully those claims are going to be picked up without a reservation of rights and it's not something you have to worry about. Uh, I think insurance carriers are still dealing with um, how they're going to respond to a claim where someone's saying they got sick. You know, we're all very aware that they've denied, you know, pretty much writ large any claims for business interruption related to COVID. There certainly have been denials for any event cancellation because there were specific exclusions for COVID. But how they're going to deal with it if someone sues and says, I got sick at a show, um, I would argue you're probably gonna get a defense with a reservation of rights. Um, but I think a lot of those cases, at least how I see them right now, would be pretty defensible if you do have commercially reasonable efforts put out. But the most difficult thing for a plaintiff who would make that claim would be proximate cause. Mm. Which basically is, how are you gonna prove that you got sick at the venue? Yeah. How are you gonna prove that you weren't the sick person who came in? And what about a counterclaim? What if that person mm -hmm. who came in was the sick one who infected other people. Um, mm -hmm. So it's proximate cause is difficult. And then damages. Uh, you know, what, thankfully what we're hearing, um, what I hear uh, in conversations that I have with public health officials um, is that, and doctors, is that uh, the disease is becoming weaker over time. 
Um, it becomes more, less pathogenic, less disease causing over time, the new strains that, that come out. Um, and so for, from a damages perspective, it's less likely that someone is going to be hospitalized and someone's going to die. And frankly, if you look at um, IEBA and the membership and the artists who are performing at shows and the fans who are going to the shows, uh, most of the people that are going are not going to have the comorbidities for COVID that you see in the general population. The population that performs at shows, that works at shows, that goes to shows, tends to be younger and less um, comorbid for COVID, um, mm -hmm. which would mean less of a risk uh, for hospitalization and death, which means less of a risk for damages. Right. Yeah. And hopefully it stays that way. This, this disease seems to be morphing over time and, and right. every day seems to bring a different angle. Right. Um, Tim, this has been incredibly educational for me and I'm sure for our listeners as well. Any, any last words of wisdom that you'd like to leave us with? Uh, it, it tends to be some of the last words of wisdom that I leave whenever I speak at IEBA. Um, and it's, if, if you're in doubt, um, have a lawyer look it over, but make sure it's someone looking over who represents the buying side. Um, just because someone's in entertainment, if, if they're a music label lawyer, doesn't mean they're going to be the best person to review a venue or a buyer's contract. Mm -hmm. So you know, try to get someone who's going to look at it, who's going to know what they're doing. Um, you know, having a real estate or a divorce lawyer look at your entertainment contracts because they happen to be your cousin or your brother or your, or your aunt is not necessarily doing you any, doing you any service. So, yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks, Tim Epstein. Um, thanks so much for uh, spending time with us today. My one regret is we won't be seeing you live in person at the IEBA conference this fall. Of course, there isn't going to be one, but we'll be back with bells on hopefully in 2021. So thanks yeah. again. Thanks again for your insight. No problem. I'll see you in 21. You bet. Take care.